Welcome to another episode of Thoughts of a Techno Wizard. It is Tuesday, June 14th, 8, 10 a.m., 2022. And uh, I want to talk about aliens today. <laughs> so I was listening to yet another Lex Friedman podcast. Um, great one with... Uh, uh, I don't know why I do this to myself. <laughs> Let me look it up. <laughs> uh, Lex. Here we go. Um. Shoot, shoot. Now is an awkward pause. Robin Hansen. There we go. Robin Hansen. So, uh, this fellow uh, has some is apparently an economist, um, and he was actually the creator, or one of the lead creators of um, an idea I talked about before on this podcast, called Grabby Aliens, right, this theory of, um, I guess, kind of analysis of space and aliens, and <laughs> that's a terrible way to put it, basically, to recap the Grabby Aliens idea, um, it's, it tries to use, you know, current data and our understanding of how things work and how life works in order to suggest whether or not we are early, um, where all the aliens are, you know, when they might be here, when we might be able to see them, things like that. All right. Very simple, very much simplifying it. So initially, I believe... I said that I really like this theory um, because it, it used much broader time horizons than most others and didn't try to too hard to kind of justify um, this special or this time we live in as, as some special time, right? Like it, it speaks in terms of millions of years, billions of years, things like that, right? Where... According to the Grabby Aliens theory, the the most likely time we would see other aliens and kind of even commune with other aliens is in the next ten to one hundred million years, <laughs> which a which is a long ass time, right? Beyond any scope of any human alive, but it is not necessarily beyond the scope of human uh, society of humanity. Um, granted, it is longer than we've ever been alive. Like, humanity has only been alive for a couple hundred thousand years. Right? And hominids have only been alive for, what, two million years? So that's, what, five times as long, at least five times as long as hominids has, have existed. Have, <laughs> since we've ever, you know, even gained sentience. Um, or much longer than we've gained sentience. However... It does kind of put things into into perspective, right? It allows us to imagine imagine a kind of society or time, right, in, in a much broader view than we typically imagine it. And by doing so, we can better figure out how we can last for that long. Like, what what would it take for us to survive? For us to retain our society or at least be able to 
and sure our society lives on for millions of years right um i think well before i get get into that during this interview with robin hansen and lex friedman i began to see that i disagreed with this fellow <laughs> like he is an economist and so turns out the way he, he derived you know this theory this grabby alien thing um and a lot of his um context his justifications i suppose i do disagree with because he seems he seemed to have used a lot of um assumptions about how life you know kind of develops and how we might be able to how we might be able to see other life forms or how they might expand in the future things like this right he focuses very much on things like competition right as well as um this idea that life um goes out and tries to change things and you'll be able to see that from a distance and things like that the sphere of influence As you all have, uh, if you've been listening to my podcast the last couple of weeks, as you all might ascertain, I've begun to question the hold that competition, you know, has on our, on our psyche, on our society, on our theories and science and things like that, all right? A lot of our theories of evolution and our understanding of economics and how people work and all this, that, and the other heavily relies on the idea that we inherent like life is inherently com- competing with each other with itself so we are in competition with other people to get resources other life forms are in competition to get resources and so on and so forth and because of that it, it kind of paints a certain picture about um, how life works and though I'm no economist, I'm no expert at pretty much anything. So who cares what the hell I th- <laughs> what the hell I think? Nonetheless, you know, I like to I like to think about these things. Like, what if they're wrong? What would that look like? What would it take to prove that they're wrong? And things like that, right? And I think, just on the surface level, because there's different pieces of this I want to try and touch. Um, I wish I would have wrote notes as I was listening to it, but I pr- primarily listened to this on my drive to and from work last couple of days, so <laughs> didn't really have time for that. Um, but I remember thinking that it it seemed very weird to focus on competition, especially when you get to life on a global level over millions of uh, of, of um, millions of years of time and things like that. Um, and so on. All right, he has some great points. Right, he had this part where he was talking about how life can be measured in terms of, or specifically intelligence can be measured as um, overcoming a set of hard steps. All right. Um, so this might be how long it took to develop life in the first place on a planet from nothing, like from just chemical soup, and then 
the simplest building blocks of life pop up and then from there um, multicellular or single cellular life and multicellular life complex life forms and things like that eventually till we get to where we are today um, another point he, he mentioned how, is how you have to life has to kind of come up relatively quickly on many of these planets in order for that for them to be able to not just exist but also expand outside of that planet because many planets only have a, a life uh, span of about a couple billion years and that seems extremely long <laughs> for us but when you think about it in a cosmic sense the universe as we know it you know we think has only existed for about 14 billion years about 13.8 or something like that roughly you know 14 billion years and the earth you know um came to its, its existence about four billion years ago so relatively soon after the universe expanding i say soon because we can i've said this many times we can um predict or that we we think the universe will likely exist for another couple trillion years like quadrillion years like so long that you know we can't even we barely even have numbers to describe how long i mean no that's wrong we have plenty of numbers to describe how long but we don't really have a concept of how long that really is nonetheless if you look at it from the perspective of fractions and and you know things like that that's kind of like a human right has a hundred years and in the first year or the first you know couple seconds of life <laughs> we already are reproducing again like it's it's crazy how fast um life has has started up on this earth compared to how long the universe will exist but also what's what's interesting wow this is a huge spider web just not even a web just like a a thread of spider silk just floating in the air crazy um but yeah like what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So, f four billion years, right? The Earth has been here. But that does mean, however, you know, because the Earth revolves around the sun and our sun will expand, that means our Earth only has one billion years left. One billion years before life is no longer possible on the Earth because it will be fried like venus <laughs> and shortly thereafter the entire planet will be engulfed by the sun expanding and then the sun will go into a supernova or you know into a, a dwarf star or something like that i forget um but either way that does mean that for any planet that might give life that we are are, are able to to maybe measure right based on you know planet earth just if you look at other pl Earth-like planets, with their, which there are plenty, right? There are, um, what, hundreds of thousands of Earth-like planets out there in our, our galaxy alone, not even counting other galaxies. But each of those Earth-like planets, right, have a shelf life where um, the first, you know, billion or two billion years, life can't really exist because it's too hot. It's just magma, right? Um, and then after that, it becomes some sort of water planet, right? Um, which may or may not be good or bad for life. I mean, our life, our life on Earth has started in, in, in the water, in the oceans. So 
that that could be a good thing but um we're not sure if sentient life like quote unquote complex life life that can you know use tools and things like that fire can exist underwater in the ocean many people say no i think maybe they can't <laughs> um but we don't know all right but either way that does mean that you have you know uh, just a just a sliver of time that one fifth of time or two, like one billion years for life to um, evolve and to where we are today into some sort of civilization or some sort of intelligence that allows them to manipulate the, their environment in order to you know build things and and stuff like that and then after that they have to move on before their son um, and explodes or <laughs> you know um engulfs their planet so that means you know if life doesn't evolve fast enough right if, if it takes you know six billion years for life to evolve to a point where you know things are intelligent and able to manipulate their environment then you know they may never have a chance in the first place if they take you know 4.5 point or four point eight zero zero eight nine 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 years or whatever billion years to exist just to to evolve into you know uh multicellular organisms they might not have enough time to you know evolve beyond that so on and so forth um so all that said <laughs> that means that any life form that exists would have to you know come relatively quickly on their planet and then expand relatively quickly in terms of geological times not really human lifetimes right so i thought that was a really great you know way of seeing these ideas and thinking about these ideas in these longer time spans um and then he mentions um things about like quiet and loud aliens whereas quiet aliens are ones that never really go beyond their solar system or their planet they kind of just stay there and you don't really hear much from them because for any myriad of reasons uh, maybe they don't want to expand maybe they don't want to you know draw attention to themselves maybe they're not advanced enough like we are like technically we would be a quiet alien um to any other aliens watching even though we has been sp sending stuff out there any stuff we send is in pretty much invisible <laughs> to any other life form that's outside of our um radius are uh, of our uh, radio signals which is what uh 100 light years or so because we've been since we had radio it was roughly 100 years or so so 100 light years seems a lot but it's actually extremely small when our galaxy itself is like what uh 100 200 million I don't know, so long as, <laughs> I think about 100 million um, light years across or something like that. Something crazy. Um, and then there's tons of galaxies out there which are so far beyond, you know, our scope of, of, of knowledge that we, we, can't even, we can't even entertain the idea of getting close to them anytime soon. Like anytime within the, unless we somehow invent some or become knowledgeable some new... Uh, laws of physics but yeah 
sorry, I'm getting lost here with all these, all these. It was a four-hour podcast, so I'm trying to remember all the different points I was, I was uh, wanting to talk about. Um, but yeah, going back to the idea of competition. So, if I remember correctly, he was talking about how um, loud aliens are the ones that want to expand and are expanding, and because of that, they have the, this sphere of change that you see. You know, they they would they would uh, change the uh, the space around them in some way that we can see things like you know taking apart planets to build you know um, structures around the sun to harness that energy this that and the other and that's visible from a very far away even if they're in a different galaxy um, well maybe not in a different galaxy unless they're doing that on a galactic scale um, or unless they're doing it on a really large star like um, some of the brightest stars in our universe the ones that we can see from billions of years you know billions of light years away if they did around those maybe we might be able to see something um but nonetheless loud aliens would be very visible to us and um he was saying that they they would uh expand based on these laws of competition or these ideas of wanting to go out and get resources before any others um claim those resources now, the reason why I disagree with this, even though it sounds like it makes a lot of sense, is because if you look at life on Earth, I think the view of seeing life as inherently competitive misses the point, right? When you look at how ecosystems work, and that they are primarily collaborative, right? Competition seems more like a byproduct or an accident as opposed to, you know, um, the main goal or the main, you know, kind of barrier or whatever you want to call it, right? Like, for instance, with trees, <laughs> people used to think trees are competing for the sunlight and for water and things like that. But in actuality, they're all connected um, in a shared network of, you know, the mycelium. And they actually are like a giant communist compound in that they share <laughs> their resources, Um not necessarily equally, but to each their need, right? So if, you know, the younger trees will be prioritized for this in order for them to grow, the um, uh, older trees are, you know, have most of the, the sunlight, um, but they they don't just, you know, selfishly, you know, block it up. It's actually been shown that trees would race to, like if one tree falls in a forest, the other trees would race to cover the canopy not merely to because they're trying to get the most um, sunlight, but because they're trying to protect the soil from from getting dry. Because if the, the soil gets dry, they all will die, right? So they're actually, you know, um, kind of cooperating in terms of how they cover that sunlight. And they were able to see that it's more about cooperation as opposed to competition because the way that they, you know... Um, cover the sunlight it's less about any one tree trying to maximize for his own benefit and more so all of them trying to cover you know trying to block the most light from reaching the the, uh topsoil so (laughs) and we see this the same thing with with the water right whenever they find a new water um system or other types of uh, nutrients in the soil they would send it out to the other trees that need you know that help so if and this is this is for trees with different species 
different species like they're all connected in the same network and they all share resources granted they do of course you know favor their kin you know the the ones in their family the trees that are of the same species from the same you know type of tree the same their offspring essentially their family uh, but they still spread it out with with the other trees in the community uh, and that's super beneficial for them because they form these symbiotic relationships where one type of tree, you know, um, well, it is more able to get this type of resource and another type of tree is, uh, is able to get another type of resource. And then they, and they swap, right? <laughs> uh, so they can specialize, but at the same time, you know, generalize. At the same time, have that general um, understanding and, and sharing. And this is extremely powerful, right? And this doesn't stop at trees. Each tree houses... A couple, what, dozen to hundred or multiple hundreds of other animals and insects and life forms, right? So each tree is an ecosystem within itself that gives, that is, that is the habitat, right, for many insects, many other types of birds um, and squirrels and all this other stuff, right? So if, we, if things were competing... You would think that you would have less of these symbiotic relationships and more parasitic relationships, right? Or maybe I'm just dumb. Maybe I just don't understand competition. Maybe that's the problem, right? Um, and I'm sure, you know, an economist or something like that would be like, no, actually, if things are competing, it makes sense for them to, uh, to share or to do this, that, and the other. But in my opinion, if, if we're using the term competition... But really, we mean, you know, the end, but really the end result is a huge amount of sharing <laughs> and cooperation. Then maybe in the first place, we should say cooperation. Right. Um, that's just how I how I see it. And again, I might just be wrong on that. Maybe that's just my my naivety. Naivety. However you say that. See, I can't even say that word right. <laughs> Nonetheless, I do think. um how am I on time? Okay, 20, 20 minutes. So I, I do think that it is interesting to see that most animals and, in, and insects, most life on this earth, seems to be more cooperative than they are competitive. Meaning that they are more open, they have more relationships that are um, collaborative, that are cooperative. As opposed to purely self-interested, to that is purely, you know, self-oriented. Granted, they're they're not altruistic, right? There are some that are altruistic, but they're not completely altruistic. So I, I I do think, you know, there's something there. However, it's also a good point to point out. It's also good to point out, I think, that any individual life form that can't necessarily be altruistic. Because any individual life form is actually full of millions of smaller life forms, i.e. bacteria. Right? They're full of bacteria and these cells and viruses, if, whether or not they're alive or not, you know, and all these different life forms. Like your, your body is almost more bacteria than it is, you know, you, whatever you are. Or you are, you know, 40 or 50 or 60% bacteria. <laughs> right? It's pretty crazy. So, being altruistic as an individual actually is beneficial 
uh, for all these bacteria inside your body. And that's true for almost every life form on this earth, whether it's a plant or an animal. Maybe not an insect. I don't know about insects. Probably insects too. Because yeah? <laughs> I heard like snails have a shit ton of bacteria that makes them one of the most poisonous things. Like if you touch a snail or try to eat a snail you haven't washed, you can die very quickly because of all the bacteria there. But nonetheless, <laughs> um, yeah, to me, I think life, I think we may be better suited we may be able to better understand how ecosystems work in terms of the complex complexity of their systems by creating theories of co uh, a cooperation as opposed to competition. Because competition makes us think of everything in isolation, right? Competition makes us think, oh, what's this individual's, you know, goal? You know, what, what, what's their motivation or what's their, you know, uh, benefit for this or what's their, you know, resource that they're looking for, right? And yes, that can be useful, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't allow us to see how life um, evolves into this incredibly complex tapestry, right? It makes it, it, it makes it very easy to ignore the ecosystem, the system that makes life possible en masse. I think a cooperative a kind of theory of evolution would allow us to better understand how life became so complex in the first place. Because what you see with a lot of systems is that the more systems that are inter interconnecting, that are networking with each other, that are interconnected, the more complexity you have and it becomes exponential, right? This is where you see that exponential growth with not any one it's not like any one individual life form exponentially grows, but life itself exponentially grows because of all these interconnected systems. Like right now, I'm looking at my little neighborhood and I, I just in front of me, I can see like a dozen, at least a dozen different species of trees all in the, <laughs> one little backyard or one little you know, area. And I'm sure in each of those trees, there are hundreds of birds that you know go in and out of those trees and there are probably thousands of insects and other types of animals and all this other stuff right how just in this small little square footage right so the complexity of that system is already so high that i would never be able to you know um individually account for everything for how all the all of them relate but if i step back Right? I can think about, I can understand this entire system on a rough, <laughs> you know, on a rough level. And I would argue that if I view this as a cooperative system, as like, oh, the squirrel does this for the tree, and that, you know, creates, you know, uh, or when the squirrel looks for these nuts, they plant it, and then that'll create more trees for this, and then the birds do this, and that brings this. And, you know, <laughs> if you if you view it, in terms of how they cooperate to feed the system or how they, you know, how their individual interests often coincide with the interests of others, right? That theory or that concept will allow you to a, a, a more holistic understanding and more comprehensive understanding of how the entire system works. If I were just to view it as, oh, how does the squirrel get the most out of their system right or or something like that 
how does the, the this tree get the most out of their system? Then I might not see, or I most likely would not see, and we know this because growing up, most of our science textbooks didn't really talk about any of this. Right? Um, I wouldn't see how they interact with each other. Like, why is it that only in the next, last couple of decades or so, and even now, in 2022, most people don't know that most trees are connected in a freaking network. Most people don't realize how many birds are in each tree. Most people don't realize any of this, right? Because our, our, our textbooks and our, the way that we understand science is, is far too focused on a mechanical view of, oh, what does each piece do, you know, in the system? Or what does each piece do in this machine, right? They don't even think about it as a system. They more so see it as a machine. And a self-interested one where each piece is just for itself. And then they happen to, uh, you know, um, connect with others or interact with others. But anyways, all that to say, if we take this on a cosmic scale, right? The fact that the way life interacts on Earth is largely cooperative and that cooperation creates far more complexity than any individual selfish competitive system can do or 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 individual can do on its own then we would we would be able to imagine right a cosmic scale civilization or ecosystem right like maybe there already is aliens out there or whatever but they operate in an ecosystem right so it looks natural right so let me back up here i'm not sure if i you know drew those drew those uh connections well enough what i'm saying here is that maybe we won't know life in space or like alien life when we see it because we're too busy looking for our current day parasitic relationship with the environment which is a largely self-centered competition-based colonialization you know type of relationship where we go out and the way we change the the environment today which is not true for all of human history but only in the last 10,000 years which is a lot but not 200,000 years of human history right nonetheless in the last 10,000 years since we created archaeology and began creating empires and things like that, our behavior has been largely parasitic, right? Where we go out and change things by grabbing what we want and tearing down, blowing down the rest, right? So, of course, if we look into, if we think that our way of life would be normalized throughout space, then we would think that in order for us to see other aliens, then we would have to see if they take a planet apart and do this or take asteroids apart and do this and this that and the other right and so that biases what we are even looking for to the point in which we may not even recognize that this is an alien society out there but they look like a natural uh, um, planet they look like a natural solar system because they already they have all these asteroids and planets you know aligned and you know everything is there you know it's just existing Right, and they're not taking apart an entire planet. Maybe you know they they feed they 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 build a planet, 
and or maybe they already had planets there and they're taking out resources they only take out as much resources as they put back in all right or maybe they themselves are the ones that built those planets entire planets in the in the solar system and by doing so they're able to live there for billions of years and they can even control their own sun so that it it will last for you know billions of years longer than any other natural sun maybe the suns that we see out there or the suns the stars that we see out there that are you know long lived are unnatural maybe those are created all right and maybe we think oh we can account for how they were created because it looks natural but maybe those aliens themselves also saw how life worked like we are today like some of us in the solar punk community and other you know ecological people are starting to realize that hey bio like nature has already solved many of these problems like how do you cooperate with billions of species with billions of 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 a creature well you make it cooperative there are trillions of trees out here right and they they take a massive amount of resources but they feed it back into the ecosystem. They take a bunch of carbon every single day, a bunch of light, a bunch of oxygen and water and everything like that every single day. And it goes right back into the ecosystem to feed other things. Right? Every, almost every animal <laughs> only takes as much as it can use that day. When it dies, it goes right back into the ecosystem. Right? This, that, and the other. We don't even understand how everything relates to the ecosystem as much as we should but we're starting to realize that if we utilize biophilic designs biophilic engineering if we copy nature then we can have more efficient technologies we can have more efficient systems that last that are more sustainable that last for longer periods of time how do you you know communicate information across generations for thousands of years millions of years dna <laughs> it has its own self-correcting system yes it can mutate but it uses those mutations to adapt itself that's amazing so right now we're trying to there's people trying to um create you know dna based computers and so i wager that in if we survive the next you know through this parasitic uh, phase in our life if we survive in the next hundred maybe even thousand years we will become so attuned with nature that many of our technologies will be indistinguishable from nature itself well it will be hard to see whether or not this thing was built by a human or was naturally created And that, that, I think that can happen in just the next thousand years. Maybe even a couple thousand. I think the next thousand at least. Or at most. Maybe even the next hundred if we really, you know, get, get, a, get a little wild with, <laughs> you know, with our stuff. So, to back up a bit once again. We have this assumption today. Like even on Earth. That we would know if life, if, if a previous advanced civilization you know existed because we would be able to see in archaeological data that you know they uh, used a bunch of metals and they created all these things we would be able to see foundations and this that and the other right <laughs> but that assumes that they would behave just like us that assumes 
that they would behave in a parasitic relationship with the environment where they move the the most of the natural environment out the way in order to create artificial constructs that are extremely hard to maintain let me tell a, a brief story i was uh, you know one of my coworkers at work i was like what you do this weekend she was she said she spent all weekend like she did for the last 2 years almost trying to um, fix up her backyard because she is a, a new homeowner she bought this home from a uh, a landscaper the person who had the home before was a landscaper and they created this amazing oasis right there's a fountain in the middle and all these all these like uh, delicate paths and and and, uh, and um, artificial waterfall and things like that and all this and that and the other it's, it's amazing but they got old and they weren't able to upkeep it and it completely fell apart and it looks like a complete trash heap <laughs> so it's a mess and so she's been spending two years you know granted a lot of it is spare time because she has work and all this other stuff so every other weekend or so for the last two years trying to maintain or trying to um re re-up this environment to to make it you know look good again but which is I really I really like that she's doing this. She's not just putting it back the way it was, how that landscaper created it. She's actually trying to balance it with the with a natural um system, right? So they used they they have they use a lot of imported things like English vine or whatever, I forgot what it's called. But it's an invasive species that is very hard to, you know, um maintain. But it looks pretty, right? And so what she's doing is replacing it with um with plants that people might might deem as weeds or as you know un, unfavorable but are uh, native right to this area um to this you know environment and she bought a whole bunch of these and are planting them back and they naturally you know fight back the these invasive species and things like that and they create you know little pockets of ecosystem within the environment that is easier to maintain same thing for the grass people have been you know, when she bought the, uh, the the property, people were like, oh, this this the grass, this is the hardest grass ever to maintain. Good luck with that. This is going to be terrible. It has terrible grass. Turns out that landscaper was using a whole bunch of chemicals to try and create, you know, this, this lush green grass um, and didn't really succeed. Or, you know, after they weren't able to maintain it, it quickly fell apart and became unmanageable. So what she did is bought some, um, some, uh, uh, algae algae and stuff right put that all over the grass and a few weeks later boom greens grass in the neighborhood it's beautiful right so she's using a lot of the native plants and, and natural things in order to establish an environment right that is much easier to maintain and still looks good right so all that to say i think people are learning more and more that we can't just <laughs> you know force you know nature we can't force the environment to do as we want without recognizing how the environment works in the first place because it's far it takes far more energy and i would say wasted energy to maintain a specific environment to maintain a specific look and feel and you know structure that is unnatural that is that is you know um foreign to any environment I don't really like to use the terms natural, unnatural, because honestly, we are natural. We are nature, right? Humans are nature. But currently, due to 
and I would say hierarchy, right? Due to this this idea that we are above nature itself, we behave in a parasitic way. We behave in a foreign way. We behave in an inherently inefficient way. And so if we continue to, you know, view the universe as this idea that any advanced civilization, any civil, any life form that attains some sort of intelligence or and, and eventually sentience, right, and then begins to um, explore beyond their natural ecosystem, their planet, the assumption that they would, you know, um, build things that are obviously, you know, <laughs> uh, foreign to that environment is inherently flawed. Because not only is it, you know, not only does it depend on them behaving as a parasite, but it also is incredibly inefficient. It's incredibly energy um, taxing, right? Where, like the Kardashev scale, right? We have this idea that, you know, any advanced civilizations, they would have this Kardashev scale where the first level K1 civilizations is them using as much energy as their planet can produce and then k2 is, is using the full energy of their sun and k3 is a, uh, a full energy of their galaxy or something like that right and i do think there is something there like that's an easy way to see um you know roughly what level a civilization is at like how much they can garner from their environment like how much energy they can use however I do think it is just because somebody may use more energy doesn't mean they have to use it in a way that we think they should use it in a way that is, you know, very bombastic and huge amount of weaponry and and, you know, huge structures and this, that and the other. Right. I do think there is a place for mega structures like I would love to see halos and um, birch planets and things like that where you literally create a bunch of layers around a planet where people can live. But I think we have a fundamental misunderstanding of how we can use energy. For instance, just because you use, you know, um, the full energy of your sun doesn't mean you're using it efficiently. Right? Where I, I think they said, because I was looking up, like say for instance, solar panels, right? I think solar panels use, what, 20% of the energy that they get from the sun? And I was trying to think, you know, how efficient are leaves? Like, why don't we copy leaves? And apparently, any one leaf is actually fairly inefficient. It only uses a small percentage. I forget how much. Let me look it up real quick before I say a number. Um, how efficient are leaves at absorb light energy? Oh, never mind. I lied. They're very efficient. They use 100%. <laughs> they're 100% efficient at absorbing light from visible spectrum. Oh, that's what I was looking at. Only 45% of the light is in the photosynthetic, photosynthetically active wavelength range. So there's a bunch of light that they can't absorb, but in the you know visible spectrum, the part that they do absorb, they absorb a lot of that. Right. 
Um, but that actually is even better for my point, right? That shows us that nature, meaning, you know, the natural habitat, you know, these trees and things like that, have a extremely efficient way of using energy, right? And I would love to see how much energy they actually use, like how much sunlight does a tree use and what do they use it for versus how much, you know, um, sunlight does a solar panel use and what do we use it for? Right, because I would I would wager that a tree uses the energy far more energy for far more things, or rather the ratio it, it probably uses more or less energy than we think that it would need, because it's far more efficient at gathering the energy and using the energy. But nonetheless, that also shows us that we need to copy more of nature, because nature has can absorb 100% of the light it aims for. Right. For any one leaf and then there are multiple leaves and this huge tapestry of trees. Right. Like the whole like the fact that the reason why leaves are the way they are is because they um, have a huge amount of uh, solar. Uh, I mean, goodness. Surface area. Right. Each leaf can gather a huge amount of. Um, energy and then all the leaves in their different angles and things like that can gather even more energy. Because they're, you know, getting every angle that they can. And so as the sun is going around the sky, they can get energy from this angle, that angle, the other. Right? So if we copy that, then we will be able to be more efficient with how we gain the energy. And then how the energy is used. Right? Trees feed themselves, but they also feed other, you know, things. And they, they, and they store things in the soil. And that soil... Right is then used by other insects and other plants and other animals. <laughs> so it, it, everything that the, that the tree does is able to, you know, sustain hundreds of life forms. Far more than any one machine can ever do that we build. Like even our house, right? We have this energy going into a house and any one house can only sustain, you know, a couple people. <laughs> that's, that's completely terrible, paltry in terms of a tree. Right, where a tree can sustain literally hundreds of life forms, whereas <laughs> um, our house can barely sustain, you know, less than a dozen, <laughs> half a dozen, if that. So, yeah. All that being said, I think competition may be the wrong way of viewing this. And further, um, the building of structures, or you know, the the large scale. Uh, kind of growth or large-scale construction might be the wrong way of viewing this. Maybe other alien life forms, you know, are able to create or reflect the natural evolution, right? How, how things were created in such a way that allows them to be far more efficient, far more sustainable for a far longer time. And if you're living on those time scales, it only makes sense for you to copy nature because the only example of something existing for that amount of time is the natural ecosystem. Trees have been here far longer than we have, right? They're, what, two billion years old or something like that? Like, trees have been here a long ass time and there's way more, than, more of them. Trillions of trees on this planet. Right? Same thing for insects and all these other things. 
a mountain. A mountain can exist for a billion years easy. All right? And it moves across the land as it needs to and things like that. It's not alive. We don't think it is. <laughs> but it, it's, it's a structure that is able to exist for a billion years. What structure can we build that will exist for a billion years? Not, not we, can't even, <laughs> we can't even begin to entertain such an idea. So if you look at a cosmic scale, it only makes sense for any advanced life form to realize that, hey, I'm just going to build a mountain, right? Or I'm just going to build a planet. Or I'm going to build a tree, you know, this, that, and the other. Like it, whatever is the, the, the local thing on their planet that lasts for a long time, if they realize that they want to exist for a long time, it makes sense for them to copy nature. Now, I spent a whole lot of time on that. There were a couple other things that he talked about that I found interesting as well. The idea that um, the the goal of our of our uh, society in the future will be to create as many descendants as possible, right? Because once again, if we want to see other aliens, if we want to expand beyond our planet, we're going to need far more humans. We're going to need far more people, far more uh, folks thinking about these problems and things like that. And if we want to exist for a far longer time. Um, the best way to exist for a longer time is through your children, is or through your descendants. All right, and I say that like that because one thing he talked about is the fact that we will eventually come up with a, a thing called emulated minds, M's, which allows us to live for a, you know, I don't know, millions of years, maybe even billions of years through simulated through simulations, through uh, some sort of computers or something like that. I believe I spoke about this before uh, quite a long time ago, but yeah, definitely I agree. And that that's, emulated minds is probably going to be the future of humanity. Whenever we're able to figure out how to, you know, um, copy our consciousness into a computer or something like the computer, I think it will make far more sense for most descendants to actually be ourselves, <laughs> but in the future. All right. And. In order to, you know, um, not stagnate and things like that, we would still create offspring in a way that fuses our current self with our future self or our current self with somebody else, somebody else's self and allows us to create a child self. But we can have, we can maybe continue our consciousness through that other self, right? Um, that's how many people even view their kids today, <laughs> right? Is that, oh, you're an extension of myself and therefore blah, blah, blah. But, uh, but... Um, the problem with that is, of course, that they're not an extension of yourself. And uh, most people begin to realize that at a certain age, once the kids get to a certain age. But um, many of us, or many people, unfortunately, still don't really uh, like to admit that. And uh, they try to control their kids, and that doesn't end well. But either way, I think emulated minds is, is, is a huge thing that will happen. And that will be a, largely a boon, but also a problem, especially if we still have a hierarchical um, way of life um, Some other things I saw is that he, he, he seems to really like authority Which I find very Problematic because he even admitted that <laughs> um, One of the most stable parts of human history Were foragers Right Where For most of human history we have existed as foragers And people were largely peaceful Right They didn't really have large scale wars And this that and the other of course, they still battled and had violence, but it wasn't anything like what we have today. And it wasn't because they were mentally inferior or anything like that. It's simply because their um, 
environment and their ecosystem that they created for themselves inherently valued cooperation, right? inherently valued um, other people above the resources. They valued other people because they realized that other people were the best resource, right? Whenever you saw another human back then, it was a joyous occasion because they were far, not only because there were far less humans back then, but because every human had different stories that, could, that could, they could tell you. They could teach you more things about what's the, about this world and all the other stuff. And you could chill around the campfire, right? And I think we can even do more of that today. Because now that there are far more humans, yes, it may be, it may mean that any one human is, you know, not as, like, I, I like the way he put it with, uh, in terms of music, where he said, uh, and this wasn't in the same context, but he had this other point where he was talking about how um, copying things allows us to enjoy something that's really good, but it does make each copy less valuable in and of itself. Right, if you, as an economist, <laughs> right, if you're looking at things in terms of, that's how they look at things in terms of value and things like that. But nonetheless, I do think it's mm-hmm. a good point in that a great song may be copied a million times or a billion times. Like each copy is worth less because there are a billion copies. But that doesn't mean the song itself is less valuable. The song itself could still be a great song, but each copy of that song is is not as valuable as if there are only two copies of that song but i think that's a really great distinction right the fact that an idea whether it's a life form or you know um and a little material immaterial idea or whatever a creation invention whatever right an idea can be valuable in and of itself and by making copies of that idea you can share that value with more and more people but the value of each copy decreases, necessarily decreases. And I think personally, that's a good thing, right? Because I think that means that we should care less and less about um, the value of each copy and more and more about the value of ideas, the value of the original thing. This is why I get so frustrated with blockchain and cryptocurrency because people are more and more focused on the value of each copy of a thing and saying, oh, because there's only this amount of uh, copies in the, of this thing in the world, that means this is super valuable. But they don't look at the value of the actual thing, right? So, for instance, you know, um, the, 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 the uh, ugly monkeys or whatever you call them things, right? Like, the value of the ugly monkey in and of itself is is meaningless. Like, nobody actually cares. Nobody likes the art. Nobody really likes any of this but because there's only a thousand copies they say oh you know this is super valuable no that's the wrong way of viewing it if we really want to make blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies and things like that super great and valuable what we need to do is focus on how to copy really great ideas so that if you somebody creates this really great art or um invention or whatever blockchain would allow us to show us who created that thing and how they created it and then share that with as many people as possible yes each individual copy of that thing of that idea will be uh, almost worthless but the worth is not in the copy it's in the fact that you shared this amazing idea with more people than ever you ever could before 
A great example of this is digital streaming, is digital music. The fact that I can listen to music, amazing music, from people that I would never have been able to meet in real life. In real life, the only way for me to have found real music or some good music that I like is to go and physically find this person or the store where it is sold. But with digital streaming, I can literally just download any music from anywhere around the world. And that means that I can enjoy this music even though I never would have been able to find it, you know, um, in real life. Unfortunately, people then, you know, because we live in a capitalistic system where it cares more about the value of each copy and this, that, and IP and all this other stuff, the people who create that music don't get make much from it, right? And I think trying to solve this problem on the economic level through the capitalism just creates more and more problems than it solves. Because now people think, oh, in order to solve this problem, we need to, you know, copyright strike it so that you can't share it out or, or without them getting it. Or you have to, you know, buy it at this exorbitant price or, you know, this, that and the other. Or, you know, um, have this huge company own all the all the rights to all the music and they can dole out who gets it. It's just terrible. If instead we had a system where everybody can simply live how they want to live, right, they can get food and water and um and, and housing and everything else for free right through society but um they can make luxury money right or like um if you still want to use money even without money regardless either way they can make an idea and then share it out with as many people as possible and then people give them kudos people give them thanks people give them gratitude for what they made right and because of that people are still incentivized to create things and honestly i think the idea that you can only we need incentives we need to incentivize people to create things um is inherently flawed itself because people have been creating things since time immemorial and people love creating things because that's a natural part of human nature right we are social creatures and in order to um socialize with other people Right? We want to show them new things. We want to say, oh, this is what I thought. This is what I found. This is what I created. And we want to give that value to other people. Value is not some monetary thing. It's the fact that this person benefits from what you got, from what you shared. And because of that, you both can benefit together. That cooperative environment, that cooperative nature, right? As opposed to purely competitive. Goodness, I'm at time here and I need to. And get moving but um i might do another one on this topic because i think this is really important but yeah i think in the future you know especially with humanity we might have some sort of i had this idea that we might have some sort of neural neural network based crypto uh, cryptocurrency or blockchain where everybody's thoughts are minted on some you know um neuro neurological blockchain and in which gets automatically downloaded you or you can automatically download it into your brain in order to see who created what idea and how and that allows you to better you know um create new ideas and allows you to find the people who created this idea and share together and create more things granted there's a lot of you know you have to think about safety and this that and the other but nonetheless if this is a bottom-up thing that's created as opposed to a top-down thing, it can be extremely beneficial for uh, technological development, for culture, for sharing, and all this other stuff. And I think an idea like that would be 
phenomenal. And I think um, aliens out in space or whatever, you know, other places would really benefit from this or would rather would, would naturally realize that something like this is far more beneficial than just competition. But yeah, I got to go there. And uh, thank you for everything. Have a great day. Bye bye. <laughs>